Hi, everybody. Welcome to the January 31st, 2020 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on the impeachment trial. Corey, Senator Cory Gardner and other Republican senators have announced that they will not call witnesses. We have a little bit different format today. We had uh, one of our panelists wasn't able to join us, so we have a very intelligent three-person panel. Let's start with our friend Patricia Calhoun from Westward. Uh, Patty, Cory Gardner was on the fence for a while, but he was one of the first folks that was reported that came out and said, you know, I don't think calling witnesses is going to change anything. It's going to lengthen the trial. Uh, first to make headlines about it after other Republicans that were on the fence came out. What did you think of Cory Gardner's stance? It wasn't a surprise that he took that stance. It was a disappointment because I think he would... Colorado is a renegade state. It would have been nice for him to uphold that reputation. As I drove here today, you know, if it's noon Friday, there must be Jason Crow on the radio talking about the impeachment. And he was particularly erudite this morning. And just the idea of Ambassador Bolton talking about Rudy Giuliani and testifying, we, the American people deserve to hear what Ambassador Bolton has to say. And shame on Cory Gardner for perhaps not giving us that chance. David Kopel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, what about that? Did this come down to uh, the, I'm not going to say fear, but I guess the feelings about what could be exposed that we saw kind of a preview from uh, uh, John Bolton? Or was there something more about, you know what, this is such a fait accompli at this point, stretching it out is not going to matter? I think that was the point. And Lamar Alexander, who was another fence sitter on this, also said is like there's, Nothing Bolton add, for Bolton to add to what's already been proven. In fact, Jason Crow, in his, as Patty said, very uh, eloquent uh, presentation this morning, basically said the same thing. Is like we, we've laid out extensive evidence that the reason Trump withheld the aid was to compel Ukraine to an- announce, not actually do, but to announce an investigation of the corrupt Biden family, but corrupt as they are, it wasn't any violation of Ukrainian or U.S. law. So, what exactly is there to announce and all the th- to investigate? And all the the president's flimflam theories about why there was some other motive are, in my view, completely lacking in credibility. So, yeah, Bolton adds more evidence to that, but that's already, over, in my view, overwhelming. So. A senator who was going to say, I'm going to vote to acquit because I don't think the Article I charge against Trump was actually proven to my satisfaction. That kind of senator should be voting for more witnesses. But people are voting to acquit on a variety of reasons, including the fact that, well, maybe it's even if he didn't, it, it's not a crime or it's, it, let, let, as Lamar Alexander said, let the people decide presidents commit, sadly, Lots of things that, I, that meet the grounds for impeachment. Barack Obama uh, cheating in the 2012 election by using the IRS against his political opponents easily qualifies for that. And, of course, no impeachment was even started um, on that. We have a, uh, an imperial presidency, and Congress lets people get away with a lot of things. So, and, and I think added to that, it was a certainty that no matter how many witnesses were called, the Democrats were always going to say, oh, this is a cover-up. You've only called 20 witnesses. We now, now we've just discovered 21 through 25, and they were going to drag it out as long as possible. So there was a reasonable view of lack of good faith by the Democratic, man, Democratic managers. Um, and so that, at this point, they're saying just shut it down. 
Natasha Garner, Articles Editor 5280. Uh, what kind of, uh, I guess, legacy does this particular issue have? The impeachment's going to have its own mm-hmm. legacy for the 2020 election, but what about the witnesses? We're here yeah. at the end of January, and it's this big, hairy deal. Is it a big, hairy deal after its, its own 15 minutes of fame evaporates, or is this whole witnesses thing going to stick as an issue? If you are a Democratic Party candidate in the state right now, it is an issue, and it will be an issue through that election. You know, on a personal level, as someone who has an affliction where I ask a lot of questions and have made a career of that, it's really hard for me to sort of put myself in those senators' shoes and, and not ask more questions. But that's just me. But I think that's what people are going to be continuing to ask after this is all done. Um, you know, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I think minds were made up before this whole process started. Um, I think there are whole chunks of America who have not tuned in to what's happening because of that. What I think might actually happen now is people will tune in. They'll come now that sort of the, this, this process is coming to an end and when that actually happens, we'll see in the near future. But I think people might tune in to say, okay, so what did happen and what questions were left unanswered? And yes, there could have been this slippery slope of, oh, there will never be enough witnesses. But if you're a candidate who's running in 2020 and you have to stand in front of constituents and answer the question of, well, why didn't you ask? Not even one. Didn't you have have any additional questions, I think that's something Cory Gardner's team is going to be working really hard on preparing an answer for, and he won't be the only one around the country. Well, uh, the state auditor uh, released a report this week showing that the majority of oil and gas companies in Colorado have not been filling out their monthly production reports, shorting the state millions of dollars in severance taxes. The report also found that the Oil and Gas Oversight Agency did not find any of the companies for the over 50,000 missing reports. The fines that should have been imposed topped $300 million. Patty, this seems like a big deal. Coming from the Colorado State Auditor, this is not a report for a pretty credible uh, source. Uh, Do you see this reigniting an already hotbed of the oil and gas wars in Colorado? Well, it is a big deal because, as you see, it's not just oil and gas in the ground that concerns people right now. It's the air pollution that's resulting partly from this that... We're seeing that we're in the 10 worst cities right now, again, for air pollution, something we thought Colorado had beaten back when the brown cloud disappeared, but here it is now hanging over us again. What's interesting about this, um, Casey Becker asked for this audit to be done, and you have over 300 of the 400-plus oil companies which, who have failed to do these reports, 55,000 missing reports. It could be 308. million we would collect just for the fines, not for missing severance taxes, too. Um, Dan Haley, once a person around this round table who heads the Trade Association for Oil and Gas, points out that they've already paid a billion dollars in and actually put some of the blame on state agencies for failing to follow up. And indeed, that is true. We have one toxicologist in the entire state to study these these, uh, operations. Minnesota has 28. So we're going for a huge increase that would double the number of inspectors who are overseeing oil and gas, and that's important. And how Colorado fell so far down on it, why we didn't notice that we were missing these state bureaucrats who should be inspecting these operations, that's the fault of the state. That's not the fault of the oil and gas industry. David, what do you think about that? You have um, clearly, as Patty pointed out, some issues with how the state is handling it, so it's not just on one. But I I would also imagine that the industry needs to respond in a productive manner to to see if we can actually get this done. Because people, whether it's because there's only one toxicologist or a dozen of them, people are going to want the problem solved. How should the industry respond? 
well, by establishing best practices so that people file their reports on time, which, which are related to the, the severance taxes they have to pay. I, I don't think it, it's a health issue because this is the emissions that, that come from oil and, and gas and mining operations. Those are, are monitored. And it you know, doesn't matter how much oil you're pulling out of the ground. For that purpose, it matters you know, how many pollutants are being put into the air. And there's, this doesn't have anything to do with the, the monitoring of those. But, but of course, it, it is a, a tax revenue issue. Now, the amount of the tax revenue, based on an excellent article in the Denver Business Journal, which is as always does does great work on on these kinds of issues you know it looks like you know maybe a hundred thousand for one company could could be a million dollars in extra taxes for another company so you know certainly significant amounts um but not gigantic it you now there is formally a two hundred dollar a day fine uh for not reporting which as the newspapers have said could add up to three hundred million dollars but the spokesman for oil and oil and gas commission said that's not really that that's not a, a real figure because if they'd actually noticed and they said guys you know you're, you're not filing your reports they were going oh sorry you know and and started filing the next day at least so you you know, three hundred million wouldn't be fair or or appropriate or or any kind of realistic thing. Although certainly some people would like three hundred more million dollars in, in the state budget in any way. But then oil and gas said, "Oh, we actually had no idea that our reports are being used by to us are being used by the Department of Revenue for its tax assessments." So that was poor communication between them. And all I got to say, if, if those two departments can't communicate. It, is the state of Colorado so competent that you wanted to take over and start micromanaging hospitals and, and clinics? <laughs> uh, Natasha, it, it sounds like this issue is um, ripe for some action, but it sounds like on a couple different points with the industry mm-hmm. and the state coming together. Um, but you also have uh, with uh, Speaker Becker and Governor Polis, uh, two leaders that don't necessarily have a fantastic relationship history with the oil and gas industry. Do you see some partnership ahead or a little bit more contention? Oh, probably a little bit of both. Um, I think that for anyone who's read any of these auditor reports, and I've done a fair amount of that in my career, um, they they're it's not a judgment. It's not something that you look at and simply you have a, yay, this is a person in the right and this is a person in the wrong and it's done. It's extremely complicated. In this case, it spans several years. There's all kinds of agencies and regulations and tax law involved in this. And it's complicated to sort of parse out in one single headline. And I think that's what we've we've illustrated today is that a lot of these things are going to come together. Now, of course, um, different interest groups in the state are going to use it for different means. One of the, the important elements for me, though, is that any time oil and gas comes up in this country or at this table, economy becomes part of the conversation. There's a lot of conversation about how much oil and gas adds to the economy. Well, here's a pretty good example of where it's maybe not adding as much to the economy as it should be. And I think that's something that um, the, that the Speaker Becker and, and Jared Polis will probably are, are reasonably so take a look at. Um, but in addition to that, I just want to shine a little bit of a spotlight on, on the state auditor um, and also um, the Denver City auditor. These are people who work very hard. They, these reports are not necessarily must-see uh, or must-read must sort of uh, documents unless you're a journalist, but they really are. And especially in a moment in time where we lament the sort of loss of local journalism, these audit reports provide a great framework for looking at issues within the state and within our local municipalities to see what's working and what's not. So kudos to them for doing their good work on a regular basis. 
A bipartisan bill has been introduced in the Colorado legislature to give the state more oversight and control of RTD. The bill would add four state-appointed members to RTD's board of directors. Meanwhile, RTD named its new interim director, Paul Ballard, the only candidate for the job that was from out of state. David, is, are more directors on the board of directors for RTD the answer? Well, for the, starting with the, uh, the new interim director, uh, I think wise move by him to say he's only going to be the interim director is not going to seek the long-term job. I mean, when you, you're offered the job as interim captain of the Titanic, you know, maybe you, yeah, I'll, I'll be in charge for a few hours, but I'd really like not go all the way. And, and our RTD is, is sinking. They, they rammed RTD into an iceberg deliberately with the light rail fiasco, and it, it's in a death spiral. And you know, uh, so wise move for him for not wanting to be the one who's in charge when when it finally sinks. The the legislative bill has has some good features in it, like saying there should be an audit of the the pension plan uh, for RTD employees because lots of government pension plans are absolute disasters and people are not going to get what they were promised. The idea of having the state treasurer be an ex officio member of the RTD board, I don't know, does the state treasurer really have the time or the expertise uh, to do that? Maybe they can have an assistant who pays attention to it. You certainly in some ways couldn't run it worse than it's being currently done. And also one appointee to focus on persons with disabilities and another with, uh, for persons uh, focused on, on disadvantaged communities. Uh, this is the problem that our RTD has, and I think Ed Sealover talked about this on a show last year. They have the conflict of, of trying to sustain themselves somewhat by making some revenue from fares, and even this would get rid of the requirement that they have to raise 30% of their revenue from fares, which, which seems pretty low, and they can't even meet that. Um, but then it's also, or is it maybe a social welfare agency rather than a transit agency where you should keep on running some of the most uneconomic, money-losing routes because those are the ones uh, that people with disabilities or, or other disadvantaged people depend on? Natasha, do you see this maybe as an initial step where there's going to be more state involvement? We keep talking about transit and big transportation issues, but it's, it's beyond these six counties of RTD and has a bigger impact. Uh, do, you, do you see this as possibly a first step to more state involvement? Yes, um, and I think there are so many opportunities here to make transportation-related jokes. Um, but the, the one I'll start with is this kind of feels like a situation where the parents take away the keys from the teenager and say, you're grounded, we've got it from here. And that's kind of what they're proposing with having additional board members. Um, but but that aside, I, I do think, as, as Dave pointed out, some of these focuses can... Um, I, I, I personally, I think they can be helpful. Um, I had an opportunity to do a story a while ago on a group called ADAPT, um, who uh, pretty famously stopped traffic in, in downtown Denver um, by laying down in the street um, to show how inaccessible our transit network was. They changed the law and, uh, and rules and just the way the city moves here in Denver, but they also did it on a national basis as well. So simply having somebody at the table who can make decisions related to groups that we sometimes ignore is helpful and important. So that's something that I can see a lot of benefit, um, both for the state, but also for the the metro region itself. But there is so much to fix here. I mean, we've already highlighted some of them, but but from the fact that unemployment is so low in the state that it's it's hard to find drivers right now, um, and that's a stressful job. Taking that on is not for the average person. 
um, falling ridership, delayed projects. It just goes on and on and on. So I don't envy the new interim um, person as I come in to sort of try to right this ship um, because they have a really big task ahead of them. Uh, Patty, in a clumsy way to use uh, David's metaphor, if uh, this is the Titanic and the Carpathia showing up early, should RTD lean into the idea of jumping on the Carpathia, or should they seemingly, what they're doing right now, is kind of fighting the idea, kind of balking at this? What do you think they should do? Going down with the ship? I think they should welcome the state, because let's face it, the state is what created this in the first place. Over 50 years ago, people don't remember why RTD exists, but it was created by the legislature. I think some of this proposal is smart. I would argue against what David's talking about. I think giving some flexibility on the fare issue, which is set now, you have to have at least 30% of the revenues coming from fares. The result right now is that we have some of the highest fares in the country. We need to increase ridership if we're going to prove that this is useful or even make it useful. So maybe removing that right now makes sense. As for the state treasurer, Walker Stapleton seemed to have a lot of extra time on his hands. They reported he was never in the Capitol. So I'm assuming there is time for the state treasurer to actually pay attention to something like this that is so critical for really the majority of Colorado's population. Um, I don't envy the fellow who took over, but he was already basically retired from Fort Worth. He's got some time on his hands. He can jump ship. If- this week, the United States Supreme Court voted 5-4 to four to uphold President Trump's new public charge immigration rule. The rule makes it so that if a person is deemed to potentially need Medicare, Medicaid, or food stamps, they can possibly be denied a green card or visa to live in America. This rule may affect over 300,000 people in Colorado. Uh, Natasha, I'm going to throw this to you first. It feels that immigration is one of these issues that is always going to be a big deal. And the impeachment trial is kind of taking it off the table right now. This seems it's going to make it a big front and center issue for 2020. What did you think of this uh, decision coming down and its effect for Colorado? And, and exactly that. In this particular week, I mean, this would be big news, any other news cycle. But because of everything else that's going on in the country, I think it's, it's gone under the radar um, a little bit. Um, but I'm glad we're having an opportunity to talk about it because it is such an important topic. You know, I think one thing that I always like to point out whenever I can is that the Supreme Court is, made a ruling on this, yes, and they're ruling on a matter of law. But it's not a, an overall decision on the question of how America does immigration, what our policies are. They're, they're making a ruling on the legal question. Um, but I think immediately people go to that question of, okay, in particular, if this was a loved one, if this is somebody in my community, how do I feel about the application of that rule? Um, and as I was watching sort of the commentary about it this week, I was immediately, I immediately thought of the fact that this, this fall I went to Ellis Island. It was not my first visit. I've been there several times. But as you go through that structure and go through the big hall and into the separate rooms or they talk through the sorting process. In the various ways throughout our history, America has made decisions about who gets to enter and who doesn't. Um, it is. It would be, I think, very hard to make that, that have that conversation without thinking about how it would impact your own family. And, and even thinking about with my own um, ancestors and who, who came through those processes, how a rule like this might impact them. And I think that's, that's the next step in this conversation. If this rule is applied, which it will be now because the Supreme Court has ruled that is the case. Now, what does that mean for the whether we want it or not? I think you raise a great point, Natasha. I think about that too. Our own separation, the further we get from the folks that actually immigrated from wherever they did in our own ancestry, uh, the less we can relate. But if we think back to that, this was around you know 120 years ago. Uh, the you know I grew up Canadian, not necessarily American, so I know what you're talking about. Um, uh, Patty, what do you think this is going to do for uh, Colorado politics in 2020? 
I think it's going to become an ugly discussion. We have, whenever you talk about immigration, legal, illegal, you have incredible debates going on. And let's remember, these are people who are trying to go the right way. They are trying to apply the correct legal, follow the legal rules. It's going to come down to a debate, too, on what the definition of potentially, who really decides that, what happens if you come in and then you suddenly discover you do need that help. We have a cover story this week on a refugee who came into this country and is now a Denver sheriff's deputy. Really interesting to see how he wanted to become an American but also work on law and order. And you look at all the different people who've come here in all the different ways, and we should we should err on the side of being generous-spirited and thinking about what immigration has meant to this country over the years since we were founded. Uh, David, is this settled legally now that the Supreme Court's involved, or because of the nature of the decision, is there still any wiggle room? No, this this is not a final decision on the merits. What this, all the Supreme Court did, and, and uh, Justice Gorsuch explained in some detail in a uh, additional opinion, was lift a nationwide preliminary injunction against the proposed new regulation. And as he pointed out, you know, it's just ridiculous that when you've got 94 different federal district courts around the country, forum shopping plaintiffs can, you know, try in several, and all they need to do is succeed in one and get some judge who will issue not something that gives relief to the parties before the court or in the, the federal district they're in, but nationally. So you, you, it makes it almost impossible in this new thing to ever get any new regulation put into place because you can always get a nationwide injunction from somebody. And as he points out, these are very new things. And he's, he is against those on a preliminary basis when by the nature of a preliminary injunction, the factual information by the court is very short. So this will work its way through the courts, and probably eventually come back to the U.S. Supreme Court for a final decision on the merits. The question is, the law has always been completely clear that you cannot immigrate to this country, except for refugees or some other folks, but in general, if you're going to become a public charge. You don't, don't come to the United States to go on welfare. And the people who came through Ellis Island certainly didn't because there wasn't any welfare state at the time. What, what this regulation does is close a loophole that says, oh, it's welfare if you get a cash payment, but if you get food stamps, which now are like in the form of a credit card, so there's no actual, that's supposedly not a cash payment. And likewise, Medicare or Medicaid, which may not be a cash payment to you, but they're sure a a check ultimately written uh, to somebody else's bank account. Uh, as always, I appreciate your legal clarification on this, David. Let's get to our very, very part of the show, a disgrace of the week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. I'm going to start it off at the legislature with Representative Hugh McCain, who is trying to overturn a rule uh, law that was passed last year, takes effect in the beginning of March, which would turn a single possession of a drug like marijuana before, or slightly more than uh, marijuana, but single use turn it from a felony to a misdemeanor. That was passed last year by a majority, an easy majority. He wants to overturn it. The whole point of passing that last year was to get people help. If they're thrown in prison, they're not going to get help. If it's a misdemeanor, they're going to get jail time or they're going to be assigned to treatment. But it was one that was passed. It's going to Leslie Harrod's committee. We will hope that she winds up making sure that's killed because there was a good reason the legislature passed it last year. No reason to change it now. David. 
If you're one of the people who agrees with me that Donald Trump has often abused his powers and is unfit to hold so much power, and as I would say, more than one of his predecessors are also like that, why do you continue to, why do you fail to take any action against this imperial presidency? It is too much power for any one man to hold, and the odds are it's going to sometimes fall into bad hands. It is long past time to get rid of this cult of the presidency and put the presidency in general, whether it's in Obama's hands or a Bush or a Clinton or a Trump, back inside constitutional boundaries. Uh, David, I wholeheartedly agree if there's going to be any common ground right now in America that the fact that the presidency, whoever holds it, a D or an R, uh, that uh, there's too much power there. And just go out to the Constitution, the Congress has a whole lot more power than they haven't yeah. been used for years. That's, that's a very good point. Natasha. There's a bill at the Capitol right now that's looking at whether college athletes could be compensated for their use of their image and, and various other things. This is a conversation that's happening nationally. California has already made a ruling on it, and it's time for that conversation to be had in Colorado as well. Time to say something nice about somebody. Patty? Colorado's Endangered Places program just put four new sites, historic sites, on the endangered list, which just means they get more attention. And at the same time they announced these four sites that are really fascinating, we wrote about them today, they also announced that one site that was really in danger is, is making progress, and that's Deerfield, Colorado, a really fascinating place in Weld County that was an African-American farming community that a century ago was one of the most prosperous in this state and is now basically a ghost town. So good for the Endangered Places program. David. The people of the United Kingdom on today, Brexit Day, they have restored their sovereignty. Good, good for them, and uh, um, I, I think our, our example from 1776 uh, helped help set a good example for them they followed this year. <laughs> Natasha. Uh, I should clarify that on the disgrace. My disgrace was that it took for, so long for us to have that conversation. <laughs> that might have required that clarification. Um, as far as saying something nice, um, there's so much talk this week about viruses and flu and everything else, and it makes me think of all those people who are working in ERs and urgent cares, the doctors and the nurses, who you know look someone who's coughing in the face and says, let me help you. And I want to say something nice about a couple of special guests we have in the control room. Uh, my sister Gina, my nephews Bryson and Nathan are here joining us. It's good to have you back there. Hope you had a good time. And before we go tonight, I want to thank everyone who came out to see us at our big CIO on the Road event on Tuesday. It was an absolute pleasure talking with all of you. And we also want to thank the Academy for Lifelong Learning for hosting us. We do not take for granted how many folks enjoy this program. And we are so very grateful for the privilege to share some of this time with you each and every week. We're hoping to do more events out on the road this year. So be sure to stay tuned for more events this year. Go to cpt12.org and sign up for our newsletter because we'll put all the upcoming events that we have throughout 2020. And there's going to be plenty of them uh, there. And it's an easy way to just to keep staying informed, whether it's a new special program we're doing. I can even give you a little bit of a preview. There's going to be a big announcement coming up in the end of February for a whole new service, a whole new thing we're going to be doing starting in March. So uh, the place to stay informed about that and everything we'll be doing on the road with CIO will be cpt12.org and sign up for our newsletter. It's an inexpensive, free way to stay informed of everything that's going on in our community right here at CPT12. For everybody here at Colorado Public Television and Colorado Inside Out, thank you so much for watching. Good night.